Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. There is a, uh, a lot to get into today, and we will be going through all of it. We're going to start in just a moment with Patrick Hedger and the minimum wage, and I've got a whole nother take on that that I'll share with you after Patrick and I talk. Uh, the fate and future of American democracy hanging on the minimum wage. But to kick this thing off, uh, Patrick Hedger is the Vice President of Policy at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, a conservative think tank. Prior to this, uh, Patrick was with the Competitive Enterprise Institute's Center for Technology and Innovation and worked at uh, FreedomWorks, the, uh, the right-wing group started by the Koch Network back in the day who brought us all those protests against Obamacare. ProtectingTaxpayers.org is the website. And uh, Patrick Hedger 18 is, or Pat Hedger 18 is Patrick's Twitter handle. Patrick, it's been a long time since we've talked. I'm glad to have you back on the program. It seems to me that the real complaint here that we're getting from giant corporations and even the Congressional Budget Office, which goes out of their way to point out how raising the minimum wage will decrease the rate at which wealth is being transferred from working people up to the top 1%. In other words, it will benefit working people. The real complaint is that these big companies that are paying crap wages are being subsidized with our tax dollars through Medicaid, food stamps, and housing support, and they don't want to lose that subsidy. What say you? Yeah, well, hey, Tom, it's good to see you. It's been too long, and I appreciate you having me back on. So what I would say is, one, we're talking about lots of different types of businesses, right? And we're talking about a one-size-fits-all policy. So we're not just talking about the minimum wage as applied to the mega corporations. We're talking about the minimum wage as also applied to the mom-and-pop shops. And what I would say is that what we see, we see the companies that are lobbying for an increase in the minimum wage, they're actually some of the largest retailers and employers in the country. You have Amazon and Walmart and Costco that are already raising their wages to those levels, or at least advocating uh, for a raise in the minimum wage to those levels. And, and, and so I worry that they're uh, 
benevolence on that issue, if you will, is also there's a little bit of uh, cronyism there where they say, hey, look, we can afford to pay these wages and we know our competitors can't. Um, So I, I get concerned about that because ultimately when you start treating wages the same way that you treat cigarettes or want to treat carbon by increasing the price of low wages, you're going to get less people consuming low-wage workers. And by that, I mean fewer people hiring them or reducing their benefits on the fringe by you know, reducing health care benefits or reducing sick leave benefits, but increasing that wage for the people that are able to keep their jobs. So this money is coming from somewhere, um, and it's, it's a worry that the people that we're tr- trying to help by increasing the national minimum wage wage would disproportionately be harmed by it. So in other words, you want to maintain these subsidies. You want to maintain a situation where you and I, through our tax dollars, are subsidizing, in your mind, small employers who can't be bothered to put together a business plan where they can actually pay a reasonable wage. You're okay with leaving some 30 million Americans working full time and living in poverty that's fine with you. And it just seems to me fundamentally immoral even to say that we're going to, as a nation, support people who, whose business model is to exploit workers. I don't get how you could possibly support that, Patrick. Well, because the true minimum wage is always zero, and I'd rather you know put people in a position where they can actually command some sort of wage and then gain the knowledge and skills required to be able to command higher wages later on. Yeah, we heard that during the Reagan era. You know, that, this highfalutin language, you know, the, the reality is that if the, the real minimum wage is not zero. There are only two states, Louisiana and Alabama, that have no minimum wage, although the minimum wage is around five bucks in some states. But when you look at blue states, that already have minimum wages of 12 to $15, they're prosperous. And, and beyond that, I would ask you to name one single year. The minimum rate wage has been raised somewhere in the neighborhood of between 25 and 30 times. I'd have to go uh, track down the exact number since it was passed in 1935. And every single time, Republicans, billionaires, and corporations have yelled and screamed about, oh my God, the sky is falling. We're going to have to start laying people off. We're going to lose jobs. And it has never happened. No conservative can point to even one single year where when the minimum wage went up, and there have been minimum wage increases that have exceeded 30% on several occasions, where when the minimum wage went up over the next three years, you saw an actual decline in employment. It literally has never happened. Otherwise, every Republican in America would be saying, 1973, you don't want to repeat what happened in 1973. My God, it would be a disaster. Well, so the two responses to that. So in certain situations and when, when states raise their minimum wages, um, you may have a catch-up effect, right, where the natural wage level is already at a level that's be- beyond where the minimum wage is being raised to. And that in and of itself kind of proves the, the, the lack of a need of this policy, where you have natural prices that are already wa- raising people to what people are now considering a livable wage or the, 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 the minimum acceptable wage. So there's that. So you have a bit of a catch-up effect where you kind of get away with raising the minimum wage without the major side effects that we would expect. But, you know, just the economic logic tells us that when you raise the prices something, people are going to consume less of it, right? I mean, I I would assume, I don't know, I haven't watched your show in a while, but I would assume you're probably in favor of a price on carbon. Why? Because you want people to uh, produce less carbon. Carbon is not people. 
but it's still it is a we're talking people here patrick we're talking human beings we're talking people who have to go home and face their kids every week and say i'm sorry there's not going to be enough food on friday Man, I'm just as concerned about them as you are. I'm just concerned that when you raise the wage I level to their employer, then so. they lose their job. I mean, that's what I mean by the true minimum wage being zero is when people, there's an employment displacement. Um, and when If an employer are, if cannot raising, afford to pay, if an employer has put together, small or large, has put together a business plan for their business where they can't afford to pay minimum wage people, then they have a flawed business model. It's just well, that so simple. Again, you're, what you're advocating there is zero dollar wages for the job. No, that are I never believe created. in the marketplace. I, I mean, what I'm would... saying, Patrick, is if somebody goes out of business because they can't afford to pay their workers, there's a hundred entrepreneurs behind them who will come into that same marketplace and provide that same good or service and pay a minimum wage. People can figure this out. Entrepreneurs are smart people. They're not idiots. That's why, again, in in a hundred years, raising the minimum wage has never caused a loss of employment. I just don't see that as the case. When I mean, we saw numerous studies that happened in Washington State where jobs were, when they raised the minimum wage in Seattle, you had people that were taking on employment uh, outside of the city limits that uh, traditionally lived in Seattle because they couldn't find the hours or the benefits that they needed to sustain themselves, even though and prosperity expand and prosperity up. increased. Right, but and, 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 and along with that, prosperity was more demand for goods and services and more economic activity. The more money you can right, inject again, at the bottom, Patrick, you know this. Of, Come on, you have an economics background. The more money you can inject at the bottom, the more you're going to stimulate the economy. Well, again, you're talking about it's not injecting more money. I mean, business owners aren't exactly lining their pockets right now. We're talking about an economy where we've just injected hundreds of billions of dollars out of thin air from the federal government uh, into small businesses to keep their doors open uh, or keep their doors shut, if you will. So I just don't know where you think this is coming from. All right. I'll leave you with the last word. Patrick Hedger, Vice President of Policy at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. The website is protectingtaxpayers.org. You can tweet Pat Patrick at Pat Hedger, H-E-D-G-E-R-1-8, Pat Hedger 18. Pat, Patrick, thanks for dropping by. It's always good talking with you. Hey, thanks for having me, Tom. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's on your mind? Good morning to you. Good morning to you, Professor. Look here. In, in church, they got this song that says, sweep around your own front door before you try to sweep around mine. And that's what we're going to do this morning. I like that. We're going to sweep around the front door of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is the chairperson of the budget committee. Everybody knows that. We're going to hashtag. We're going to hashtag don't kill it, Bernie. Hashtag don't kill it, Bernie refers to that $15 minimum wage per hour, $15, which would put 90 plus billion dollars in circulation forever. Now, this 1.9 COVID thing, that's a one-shot thing, stimulus thing, and that's a good thing we need it right now. But $15 lasts forever, okay? This parliamentarian stuff, the, the, the corporate Democrats, which includes our president, are trying to hang their hat on, uh-uh-uh. So Bernie's got to keep that in it. If we're going to go down, let's go down with our principles, because if we, if we uh, can't win this right here, we will have trouble in 2022 and 24 because we kept, haven't kept no promises but more so, more so than that professor we, we ain't showing no, no spine to get out there and fight we're in a dog fight okay and Joe Manchin uh, uh, and uh, threatening to do this and threatening to do that let them people of West Virginia find out that Joe Manchin was the reason 
they're not getting $15 an hour or any COVID benefits. Okay, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, the Chamber of Commerce is behind all of this. They like water. You know, water can be salt or fresh. So they, they, they're financing both sides. But we as progressives, we got to stand up and say, uh-uh, we, uh, the, the Republicans got a battle going on. We got one going on with our corporate uh, people and our progressives. So hashtag don't kill it, Bernie. Keep the $15 in there. He's chairperson of the budget committee for a reason. Look here, if your rent was due on the 1st of April and you had $1,000 and you can go to Vegas with that $1,000 and put a bet that would bring you $3,000 that Bernie would keep this in or take it out, you bet he'd keep it in. Am I right or wrong? I think you're right, but I don't think that Bernie is the guy. I, I get your point, you know, if, if it's going to get out of committee and all that kind of stuff. But it's coming across to the House as a privileged motion. I mean, it, in theory, Chuck Schumer could simply bring it directly to the floor because it, it came right out of the House. So it doesn't even need to go through committee. And, but that would require Kamala Harris. And so Bingo. what I'm thinking, Morris, is that the hashtag should be hashtag something like Harris, colon, fire the parliamentarian, or Harris, ignore the parliamentarian, or, you know, Harris, do what Republicans have done in the past and fire. I realize that's too long for a hashtag. Yeah, like you get what I'm saying? That. That's pretty good. Yeah, brother, I like that. Okay, well, you go on, Tom. I had a chance to do my little man. I'll give it to you later on. Okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Morris. Good talking with you. Appreciate the call. Dennis in Riverside, California. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Hey, what's up? Listen, now, uh, the minimum wage thing. I've thought this for years. Whenever they have the, uh, the argument about it, say minimum wage last, uh, is, is suppressed for, say, 13 or 14 years, and meanwhile prices rise, right? Yeah. And then when they say, let's, let's raise it because you're going to get to work an hour to buy a price of a hamburger meal, Somebody says, no, that's the cause of, of rising prices, raising minimum wage. Well, what causes it in that 13 or 14 year interval? Magic? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, the, the, you know, labor costs are typically, there are a few exceptions to this, but broadly speaking, labor costs are a very small part of the cost of running a business. And, you know, most businesses can absorb increases in moderate increases in labor costs, like at the bottom end. Very simply, by simply reducing slightly their profits. Dennis, thank you for the call. So let me, let me take this even a step beyond where I started. Okay, raising the minimum wage is the moral thing. It's the easy thing, easy in terms of business. I mean, as I said to Patrick, you know, if a business can't afford, in quotes, to, to raise the minimum wage, let them go out of business. They will be replaced by another business that knows how to do it. Uh, it's just that simple. This is how it has been since the beginning of our republic. This is how it is in every other developed country in the world that has a minimum wage higher than the United States, which is the vast majority of them. I think it might be all of them, all of the 34 OECD countries, but I, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, so I can't absolutely confirm that. But I guarantee you it's the vast majority if it's not all of them. So all that's true. But the reason why I think raising the minimum wage right now is an existential crisis for our nation, for democracy itself, is because the big battle right now is not between democratic ideas about how the economy should work and Republican ideas about how the economy should work. It's not the debate that Patrick and I just had, which is kind of the old-fashioned left versus right debate. The real fight that's going on right now 
is between a Democratic Party that believes in governance, that believes that government can do things to make the lives of people better, that government can provide a floor through which people don't fall, that government can provide those basic functions that the framers and the founders of this country and the framers of the Constitution laid out in the, in the preamble to the Constitution, where they said that, that, the, 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 that the general welfare was one of, and domestic tranquility what Jefferson referred to as happiness in the Declaration of Independence, that domestic tranquility and the general welfare were the reasons why they were creating the Constitution and why America was reinventing itself after the Articles of Confederation into a democratic republic. That republic itself, the United States of America as a democratic republic, small d, cap, small r, the United States of America, as a democracy, is actually what's at stake in this debate around the minimum wage. Now, let me explain. Obviously, you know, 30 million people working full-time and yet living in poverty is not a crisis that is going to end democracy. It's a crisis. It's a moral crisis. It's a terrible failing here in the United States. But it's not going to end democracy. Those people are not going to rise up and overthrow the government. Um, frankly, most of them are too poor to be able to even, you know, engage in such a thing. They can't afford a, a you know, a, a $5,000 military style, uh, you know, assault weapon. No, the real danger to democracy comes when people like that and the middle class in general, what's left of it, you keep in mind, after 30 years of Reaganomics, 10 years ago, more than half of Americans ceased to be in the middle class. Which means that the, we have to recalibrate the middle class because the middle isn't where the middle used to be. But the real danger to democracy is that that larger spectrum of people, that bottom 70% of Americans basically, who are earning under $40,000 a year individually. The median individual income in the United States right now is $30,000 $30, a year, $15 an hour. That's the median income, individual income. The median household income is around between 48 and 50, depending on whose numbers you're looking at. But that's because two people are working. In fact, the average household has 2.3 people working in it. Unlike 50 years ago when it was 1.2 people. So the crisis is that those people are going to say, eh, government can't do a damn thing for anybody. The Democrats can't even pass stuff. They can't even get the, the damn minimum wage passed. Screw the Democrats. They're ineffectual. They're incapable I'm going to go with that, that strongman guy, Donald Trump, or his heir, his Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, Rick Scott heir, who claims that he's going to help me. He's going to help the middle class. And I don't care if he turns this country into a fascist, you know, neoliberal paradise. I don't care what else they do. I just want somebody to do something. I mean, this, is, this was the dynamic that played out in 2016. Donald Trump promised to raise taxes on rich people. He promised to raise wages on working people. He promised to give everybody a national health care system. He promised to cut student debt. He promised to bring jobs back from overseas. 
Those are all Bernie's positions. But they were in the mouth of a Republican and they were credible. And Hillary Clinton was saying, well, I don't, I don't know that we can do all those things. And here we are. And as long as Democrats can't do all those things, because they're kowtowing to the Senate parliamentarian or to the Republicans, democracy itself is at risk. This is not just about the minimum wage. This is about the survival of America as a republic. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And Kamala Harris needs to have the strength to do what Republicans have done in the past and fire the parliamentarian and replace her with somebody who will give us the information we need. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Tom Hartman Book Club. Today we're reading from Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. And uh, I've known about this book, read little pieces of it for decades. I mean, it's a, it's the classic work on totalitarianism. It's long and there's a lot of words in it. But for this moment, Elliot Lustig was tweeting about Donald Trump. This is back when Donald Trump was talking about three to five million illegal immigrants uh, voting, Right. And he said, Hannah Arendt, in her book, The Origin of Totalitarianism, provides a helpful guide for interpreting the language of fascists. She noted how decent liberals of 1930s Germany would fact-check the Nazis' bizarre claims about things like Jews as if they were meant to be factual. What they failed to understand, Arendt suggests, is that the Nazi Jew-hating was not a statement of fact, but a declaration of intent. 
So when someone would blame the Jews for Germany's defeat in World War I, naive people would counter by saying, there's no evidence of that. What the Nazis were doing was not describing what was true, but what would have to be true in order to justify what they planned to do next. So did 3 million illegals cast vote in the election? Clearly not. But fact-checking is just a way of playing along with their game. What Trump is saying is not that 3 million illegals voted. What he's saying is, I'm going to steal the voting rights of millions of Americans. So that's kind of a contemporary frame for this book. So let's read from the book itself. Here, this is from page 348. And she's talking about totalitarian movements and how they use propaganda, how they communicate with the public. And the difference between terror and propaganda, the, the kind of terror that they can inculcate by, by just kind of randomly arresting people. Pretty much everybody's committed some kind of crime at some point, right? Arresting people, and on the one hand, that's the terror, or convincing the people. Jesus, totalitarian movements use socialism and racism by emptying them of their utilitarian content, the interests of a class or a nation. The form of infallible protection in which these concepts were presented has become more important than their content. The chief qualification of a mass leader has become unending infallibility. He can never admit an error. The assumption of infallibility, moreover, is based not so much on superior intelligence as on the correct interpretation of the essentially reliable forces in history and nature, forces which neither defeat nor ruin and prove wrong because they're bound to assert themselves in the long run. Mass leaders in power have one concern, which overrides all utilitarian consideration, to make their predictions come true. The Nazis did not hesitate to use, at the end of the war, the concentrated force of their still-intact organization to bring about as complete a destruction of Germany as possible in order to make true their prediction that the German people would be ruined in case of defeat. The propaganda effect of infallibility, the striking success of posing as a mere interpreting agent of predictable forces, has encouraged in totalitarian dictators the habit of announcing their political intentions in the form of prophecy. The most famous example is Hitler's announcement to the German Reichstag in January 1939, quote, I want today once again to make a prophecy in case the Jewish financiers succeed one more in hurling the people into a world war, the result will be the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe, end of quote. Translated into non-totalitarian language, this means... I intend to make war, and I intend to kill the Jews of Europe. Similarly, Stalin, in the great speech before the Central Committee of the Communist Party in 1930, in which he prepared the physical liquidation of intra-party right and left deviationists, described them as representatives of dying classes. This definition not only gave the argument its specific sharpness, but also announced in totalitarian style the physical destruction of those whose dying out had just been prophesied. In both instances, the same objective is accomplished. The liquidation is fitted into a historical process in which man not only suffers or does or suffers what, according to some immutable law, is bound to happen anyway. As soon as the execution of the victims has been carried out, the prophecy becomes a retrospective alibi. Nothing happened but what has already been predicted. It does not matter whether the laws of history spell the doom of the classes and the representatives or whether the laws of nature exterminate all those elements, democracies, Jews, Eastern subhumans, the untermenschen, or the incurably sick. They are not fit to live anyway. Incidentally, Hitler, too, spoke of dying classes that ought to be, quote, eliminated without much ado, end quote. This method, like other totalitarian propaganda methods, is foolproof only after the movements have seized power. 
Then all debate about the truth or falsity of a totalitarian dictator's prediction is as weird as arguing with a potential murderer about whether his future victim is dead or alive. Since by killing the person in question, the murderer can provide prompt proof of the correctness of his statement. The only valid argument under such conditions is promptly to rescue the person whose death has been predicted. Before mass leaders seize the power to fit reality to their lies, their propaganda is marked by its extreme contempt for facts as such. For in their opinion, fact depends entirely on the power of the man who can fabricate it. The assertion that the Moscow subway is the only one in the world is a lie only so long as the Bolsheviks have not the power to destroy all the others. From Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman program. Uh, let's pick up your phone calls here. Michelle in Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, Michelle, what's on your mind? I want to give a perspective on the minimum wage from an employer's perspective. My husband is an executive chef. Thank God his restaurant is still open. They, the owners of the restaurant want the minimum wage to be uh, up to $15 an hour because they pay on average $18 an hour for their employees. And another friend of mine owns another restaurant, and he does the same thing. So if the floor is raised, then raises, you know, wages will be raised for everyone, not just – but they, they were tired of – Hearing people whine about not being able to make it on seven twenty-five an hour when they're paying eighteen dollars an hour, I mean they're squeaking by during this pandemic, but they're squeaking by, and they want everybody else's wages to come up so they're not the ones having to do other things. That's all I got to say. Well, not only that. A good day. Oh, go ahead. Not only that, Sorry. Michelle. If 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 uh, in Kansas City, Missouri, the wages go up to fifteen dollars an hour, your husband's restaurant's going to have more customers coming in, affor- able to afford, you know, a, a monthly meal there. Exactly. And if you can't take care of your employees, how are you going to take care of anybody else? There you go. Thank you, Tom. Have you. a good Michelle, day. Thank you. You too, Julia in Redding, California. You want to take a contrarian position on this? Uh, I just wanted to point out, I've been hearing arguments, especially from the corporate Democrat side, that uh, raising the minimum wage would uh, reduce the jobs, the job market. And I say, yeah, I agree. The, the father that's working three jobs to support his family will only have to work two. Oh, I see what you're saying. Brilliant. Or the or the person who's working two jobs will only have to work one. You know, two dollar two seven dollar twenty five cent an hour jobs they can replace. You know, and 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 working eighty hours a week they can now work forty hours a week and have time with their with their kids and their families. Julia, I thought you were going in a completely different direction, but brilliant. Thank you so much for that. It's great no, to I hear from you. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry. Say that again. Oh, I appreciate listening to you. Oh, thank you, Julia. Thank you for your kind words. Patrick in East Lansing, Michigan. Patrick, what's up? Thank you, Tom. Um, This is a great discussion. I had two points. I was listening to the One Fair Wage press conference after spending a weekend talking to various groups about this issue, and I learned that any senator can ask to have the parliamentarian's ruling overruled, And I thought that if we lobbied our senators, even ones who support this, we could ask them to do that. And if Vice President Harris overruled the the parliamentarian, it takes 60 votes to overrule her. 
So, That's correct. You know, if, if they're going to make these arguments, what you're saying today on the show is exactly where we need to go, because if it fails to have a mandate to have a minimum wage, Bernie Sanders wants to do what Eric Levitt said in New York Magazine, which is just to put in a tax measure like the Republicans did when they tried to repeal the individual mandate and make businesses that hire people and don't pay the $15 minimum wage become ineligible for tax credits and federal funds. And I would urge anyone to read this New York Magazine article. It's very good on that procedural question. The other article that's so good on it is Michael Reich at Morning Consult, because he puts a number on how much we are paying. He says raising the $15 minimum wage will save the federal budget $65 billion, and that's because we get $21 billion more in income tax revenues and payroll taxes. But then we save $32 billion on all these programs, food stamps and other programs. So if companies have to pay the price of losing their tax credits, then we can claw back this money that we're giving them. And the only last thing I'll say is the job effects are just not there, the lost jobs. And Dale Bellman did a wonderful book, What Does the Minimum Wage Do? And good summaries of his book are online in articles. He worked at Economic Policy Institute. He surveyed 70 studies. He found statistically insignificant evidence of any job loss, which just straight down the line hammers your point home. And I couldn't agree with you more, and I thank you for what you're doing. Yeah. Patrick, I would add that the two the two strategies that you described, the strategy of Kamala Harris saying, we're simply going to ignore the parliamentarian, as Republicans have done in the past, and we're going to push this through. That strategy and the Plan B strategy that Bernie has talked about of putting immediately into law a, a federal law that says any company that doesn't pay $15 an hour isn't eligible for all the goodies you get from the federal government are not mutually exclusive because this minimum wage, this $15 minimum wage, phases in over five years. And Bernie's uh, plan to attack companies, essentially, you know, take away their, their uh, federal goodies um, for not paying $15 an hour could take effect immediately. So you could do both. And thank you very much for bringing it up, Patrick. It's great to hear from you. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Oh, you know, Tom, this subject is really so close to my heart uh, because your guest just told every old lie in the book and starting with that the minimum wage is really zero. And as the last caller pointed out, the there, you don't have the job losses because of it because presumably, as you know, Tom, as an employer, you're not hiring more people than you need. Right. You don't have people sitting around doing not doing anything that if, oh, well, if I had to pay, you know, uh, Joyce and, and Sean and, and so and so more, I'd get rid of you because or I get rid of, you know, Paul, because presumably you wouldn't hire me to sit and do nothing. You're hiring the people that you need. Correct. And so you're well, exactly let me add right. to that, Paul, if I could, just very briefly. There was a time in America when the minimum wage was zero and we called That's those right. minimum wage workers who earned zero slaves. And, right. you know, so if the Republicans really want to make that pitch, good luck. No, it's the, that, is the, that is the pitch that the Confederate Party is making, Tom. They are still the, the party of slavery. And, you know, you get this, you know, first of all, these are not job creators. They're time wasters. 
And I call them time wasters. I love Julia, the, the woman from California, her saying, I might not have to work three jobs, I only have to work two. What a clever, I just love that. These employers are time wasters. And it goes back to this. If my daily bread costs a dollar and I make 99 cents, I still can't buy my daily bread. You wasted my whole damn day. By, and, and I still don't get my daily bread. And I sure as hell can't afford to pay taxes. So by low wages, this is how they convince the, the Trump, you know, the people who don't make it, that you, the taxes should be low because, look, you're making so little, you couldn't afford to pay any taxes. So they put the person in the same mind frame as the rich who say, I, I don't want to pay any taxes. And, and so the, it, it really is just a big lie. But you know what? Here's, here's the, the foil they always use. And I local talk show host here in Seattle, and you know the one down who works talks down there. You, I won't mention his name. Says, well, why wouldn't if fifteen? Why not thirty or forty-five or fifty dollars an hour? If that's so great that's for society. Stupid. And I'm asked the question. Okay, well, let's take it your way. If you don't want to double it or triple it, if that's if that's not good, how about we cut it in half? Why don't we make it three fifty or two forty or buck eighty an hour? Wouldn't that be better for society? Couldn't couldn't empl- employers hire more people, which they wouldn't because they don't need them. But you know what they say? If that's what they're willing to work for, and Tom, that is exactly the wording that was in Lochner. That if two people want to agree to have you work for you know two cents an hour, that you should be able to do that. In fact, in Lochner, the argument was that a baker should have to if. A baker should have to work in the basement of a building where the ceiling is only four and a half feet tall in temperatures of baking ovens and work there 20 hours a day. And the state of New York had no right to say anything about the contract between that employer and the baker that you should be able to tell them to do anything you want. And here's another thing, Tom, I'm on my rant here. If they find that an employer uh, has more than 40 work hours per person and they're splitting it up, between to part-time help, I think you should have to pay seven twenty seventeen twenty-five an hour, because where else can you buy things for less? You know, in uh, whenever you buy it in less in, in less uh, lesser amounts, you end up paying more, right? When you buy the small, the economy size, you get you get it for less. But if you buy things in a small package, except when it comes to buying help, when it comes to be buying labor, no, you. They, they can do it, and they cut your hours. If, you, if you're only hiring, if you could hire for 40 hours a week and you're only giving somebody 25 or 20 hours a week, I think you should have to pay 17 25 an hour, uh, 15% more, just like you do when you buy a small amount of a product. See, they never like to obey the, the economic rules that they put down or the laws they say they, that they don't want to buy it. for. And here's the other thing about restaurants. The price of food has gone up 10 times. Since 1968, it's 10 times more, at least 10 times more. And I remember looking up the price of ground beef in 1968 was $0.39 cents a pound. And you can't touch it for three ninety. Now you can't touch it for practically under $6 a pound. And so uh, they, you ever hear restaurants complaining about, oh, we just couldn't pay the price of food, right? When the price of food goes up, they say uh, we have to just raise our rates. But when it comes to labor, they don't feel that way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Paul, thank you for the call. (laughs) Paul does great rants. It's the Tom Harmon program, the place where despair is not an option. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
Chris in Humphrey, Arkansas, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Chris, what's up? Hey, I pay $20 an hour. I'm disabled, and my sole source of income for my company is my Social Security check. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get PPP, and I am worried about my, uh, my student loan. I have... Uh, gotten my student loan forgiven because of my disability, but uh, I look at my credit report and there is still a charge off for like thirty grand on there from my student loan, and I can't get rid. Are of Are you that saying part. that you are running a one-man small business, Chris? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. All right, I got it. Thank you, uh, Scotty in Seattle. Hey, Scotty, what's up? Oh, hi. Uh, Tom, uh, I was just thinking that uh, in tying this uh, $15 minimum wage to what I think is the collapse of democracy, if the Republicans are deliberately trying to keep people in poverty, that is uh, and they are similar to the insurrection, and they're trying. It's I call it the collapse of democracy, and where, where does this lead into the the new dark ages? Well, what it's leading to is Donald Trump's strongman fascist rule. You've got now uh, several serious candidates. Rick Scott, uh, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton are at the front of the pack. Uh, Christy Nome, I think, is more of a flash in the pan. Uh, I, you know, I think that uh, Ted Cruz is just too smarmy. Nobody's ever going to really vote for him. But, but these three white men... I think, uh, and, and Nikki Haley, I think, has countered herself out by criticizing Donald Trump. I think she's really hurt her chances of, of uh, you know, running in 2024. So you've got, in particular, these three white guys who are all in on Trumpism, are sucking up to Donald Trump, would have the support of Donald Trump when they run. And if one of them becomes president running against Kamala Harris, um, which is going to be a, a bit more of a of a lift because she's a black woman on the at least in terms of the white racist vote, which will show up against her. On the other hand, it might further animate the black vote as Barack Obama's presidency did. So you know it might it might balance out. Who knows? But but if one of those three guys becomes president in 2024, you can kiss America goodbye because four years later, this country will not resemble anything we have ever seen in this country before or anything that we've ever seen in Canada before, in North America, essentially. What you will see is the United States becoming Hungary. I don't think they're qualified to govern even under any circumstances. What, what the hell are we going to do with the country when they're, when they're the, the president of, of what? No democracy. How's that going to work? Well, it'll work the way it does in Russia right now. No, terrific. It, you, you turn it into an oligarchy. You get the, the, the big right-wing billionaire donors who put Donald Trump into office, who put Ronald Reagan into office, who put both, both George Bushes into office, and who own every single Republican senator and I think all but maybe a half a dozen of the Democratic members of the House or the Republican members of the House of Representatives you will have those oligarchs pulling the strings and they will get richer and continue to get richer and richer and richer just like the oligarchs in in the former Soviet states do and and in Russia so we get more and you're going to have a strong man who's going to declare himself Trump has already said he's going to declare himself president for life he will do it and and if he doesn't do it Tom Cotton will do it i mean that's if you want to see what it's going to look like it's not a mystery Look at, look at Duterte in the Philippines. He's doing it right now. Look at Modi in India. He's preparing to do it. 
This is happening around the world. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Andy in Hoosick Falls, New York. Hey, Andy, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I uh, just wanted to uh, give you a little story. Uh, I worked as a retail store manager for about a dozen years. There are always small businesses, three to four employees. We always paid about $3 an hour more on average than, say, the big box stores, uh, retailers. And the big mm -hmm. reason for it was loss prevention. We... Uh, we found that uh, paying about 50 to $60 a day more for, say, two good quality employees saved us in product walking out of the store, either externally or internally. They, they were more uh, in tune with keeping theft from walking out the store and internal theft, people who got uh, resentful about their low-wage jobs, they would steal. And then the result was higher turnover, more costs to retrain, higher insurance costs. So my argument would always be that a $15 minimum wage is an actual cost savings. And it the is. Reason, it, it actually yeah, is. I mean, and when you consider the cost to retrain, to, to train a new worker, that's substantial. I mean, the, the president of Costco, when he was testifying before Congress last week, um, pointed out that one of the reasons that, you know, I mean, they're paying above the minimum wage and, and they, play, they pay benefits. And he said, you know, one of the reasons for this is that we have, you know, good employee retention. It costs money to train. It costs money to hire people. It costs money to vet them. It costs money to train them. And when they leave, it costs money to find the new replacement. All those are real costs. Right. And so the argument, I've always seen this as a lobbying argument, because mm -hmm. for a small business owner to pay maybe two or three people, an extra three bucks an hour is only going to cost them $50. But when you're talking major retailers with 10,000 employees, three bucks an hour becomes a huge uh, payroll problem to them. So 
this argument against the minimum, minimum wage is, is a lobbying effort from very large corporations who don't want to pay and raise their bottom line. Small business owners are perfectly willing to do it because they see the savings. They see it right away yeah. in loss prevention. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Andy, thank you for the call. Ramesu in Birmingham, Alabama. Am I saying your name right? Yes, you are. You, I was like, you're on the air. I'm a fan of your show. The issue, I think, when it comes to raising minimum wage and just improving the overall financial health of the average working class person, a large portion of this country votes against their own best interests, especially in this Bible Belt region. I mean, they vote against, you know, increasing the minimum wage. They vote against unionizing. Uh, That and the fact that so many counties... Do you think that that's because it's more important to them to stop abortions than it is to have a decent paycheck? Well, the right wing, the Republican Party, they use... um, no abortion, but it's and guns, it's guns, and, but ultimately, I think it comes down in part to their whiteness. You know, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. a lot of people you're right in this region are poor. They don't. I mean, the economy, the economic boom has really just passed them over. You know, uh, uh, they don't have any. Anything. I mean, kind of like Barack Obama said, only thing they have left are their guns and their God or the, or the Bible. So, um, you know, they, they're being so brainwashed and used. I mean, when you vote against your own self-interest, I mean, they refuse to unionize in the South, you know? Yep. No, I totally get it. I totally get it. And you said it very well. Thank you very much. Mike in Bailey, Colorado. Hey, Mike. How's it going, Tom? Hey, you know, during all these bailouts that we're doing, the, the COVID rescues that we're doing, no one's really dealing with the issue about the rent moratorium. Because these people are piling up tons of debt. What's happened in New York, I'm surprised, hasn't happened already uh, much sooner. In Albany, a landlord, about four days ago, kidnapped his two tenants to evict them, uh, zip-tied their hands, threw a a pillowcase over their head, threw them in a van, drove them miles away, and dropped them off in a cemetery. If that's not a warning to these people, I don't know what is. And through all of the COVID uh, rescues, no one outside of, like, Cory Bush, uh, Bernie's mentioned, you know, the the back rent piling up. But this Mm -hmm. is going to really blow up. And when you have BlackRock sitting there just waiting to swoop in on all these foreclosures of rental properties and people's homes... This is going to be devastating yep. to our economy, and and now you got a guy who's going a, a, a guy who was probably a decent landlord at some time is so frustrated that he is willing to commit felonies that's going to lock him up for years. No, I, I get it, Mike. I get it, Mike. And I and I, I agree with you. I think just like the student debt thing has created a disaster, this housing thing is going to be even bigger and faster. You're listening to Tom Hartman. 
And welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Esther Forbes's book, Paul Revere and the World He Lived In. It was actually sent to me in 2010. It's a remarkable book. You'll recall I've talked about how every time our country reboots, it goes through a major transformation. It's the result of, or it follows an economic crash every time we do a positive transformation. And, you know, we've talked about the crash of 1837, the crash of 1856, the crash of 1889, the crash of 1929, all of which provoked very positive changes. I suppose you could argue the Civil War wasn't a positive change, but this is what provoked the Revolutionary War. This is from page 98 of Paul Revere and the World He Lived In. January 15, 1765, the trade, Merchant Row noted, has been much alarmed this day. Mr. Wheelwright stopped payment and kept his room. A great number of people will suffer by him. Nat Wheelwright was the first of many merchants to collapse that spring. During the war, merchants had increased their stock and speculated. Farmers had enlarged their farm. Those boom years were over. The Depression was begun, and in Boston, it lasted 20 years. January 19th, 1765. Very bad accounts. Dr. John Scully, shut up. Dr. John Denny, shut up. And Peter Bourne of the North End. By shut up, they mean close their businesses. Am unlikely to be a large sufferer by Scully. Now Mr. Rowe is really apprehensive. He is a cautious gentleman, no longer young. Even the walking was dangerous that day. Extreme bad and slippery. This is his diaries she's reading from. Next day was Sabbath. Mr. and Mrs. Rowe never missed services at Trinity, but did not go to church, my mind too much disturbed. Just as he should have been starting, his dear friend Joseph Scott had come up to see him very disturbed. Sure enough, next day, Mr. Scott had also shut down his business, and William Haskin and the company had been shut down as well. A bank failed for 170,000 British pounds. Mr. Savage fell in a fatal apocalyptic fit in his lawyer's office. Captain Forbes shut up his shop today and much grieved for him, wrote one of the diaries. The merchants were going down like a house of playing cards. Each big house, such as Mr. Rowe mentions, carried innumerable small ones with it. Shipwrights, sailors, and sailmakers might suffer first, but tailors and peruki makers, button molders or soap boilers, silversmiths or braziers all followed. Rents and mortgages could not be paid. The clergy began to find more copper and less silver in the alms basin. Farmers drove mutton to town, could get no decent price, and angrily drove them home again. Only one-fifth of the usual numbers of ships cleared that water from Boston for the West Indies. Not only was the artificial wartime prosperity over, but the merchants could not pay the duties now demanded of them. They experimented in short runs along the coast or kept their ships laid up as one after another shut down. The stagnation of trade gave everyone, from Mr. Rowe and his fellow merchants like the young Mr. John Hancock, dining as elegantly as ever at the Royal Coffee House, to the meanest porter and the cheapest alehouse, a leisure to talk they had never enjoyed before. Boston went off into a talking jag that did not end until Lexington. That would be the shot heard around the world. Why was there no money to be made on the fine ships, which for a hundred years had been bringing wealth to Boston? Why was there no work for a willing, able-bodied man? Who was to blame? England's efforts to enforce her navigation acts had upset long-established trade habits, but she had not as yet actually collected enough money over here to pay her customs officials. It seemed to have been the general opinion from the top of the social ladder to the bottom that England was to blame. The overexpansion in the last 40 years probably had as much to do with it as England, 
But it was the meddlesome tyrant from overseas that was the scapegoat. King George III was popular. Their enemy was Parliament. Grenville, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, looked about for some other form of taxation that could actually produce the money. Controlling smuggling over so long a coast, 3,000 miles away, was proving expensive, impractical, and extremely unpopular. After talking with the colonial agents in London and asking for alternative suggestions, he put the Stamp Act through Parliament. I am not, however, he said, set upon this tax. If the Americans dislike it and prefer any other method, I shall be content, provided the money must be raised. As soon as the Stamp Act went into effect, which it never did, every legal document, every newspaper or commercial paper would need a stamp, costing from a half penny to 20 shillings. It would require very few officers to enforce and no breaking and entering of private property. As Grenville argued, it would fall fairly equally on all colonies and classes. But it was technically an internal tax, not an external like a customs duties, and its theory frightened the colonists. Whether or not England had the legal right to tax these colonies in any way she pleased does not seem to be settled yet. Probably she had, but it was the utmost folly to do so. This distinction, this is a quote, this distinction between internal and external taxes seems to be the inquirer today, as it did to so many in that day, almost a quibble. One should be universally accepted through generations, and the other start men to their feet shouting liberty of death has never been satisfactorily explained. Paul Revere and the world he lived in. Lisa in Montreal, Canada. Hey, Lisa, what's up? Well, I just wanted to give a little bit of an idea about the way our uh, minimum wages work here because it's really kind of a progressive way that it goes. So it's 1425 is the general. That's from the Canadian government, mm-hmm. the federal government. That's the federal and minimum then the student wage. Is, right. Yeah. So the student is 1340. Those are for students, you know, who work during the summer or, you know, part-time jobs. And liquor servers are uh, $12.45. But for $12.45, the liquor servers, they, all of your tips are tax-free. They go into your pocket. So that's Just like they were in the United States before the Reagan administration. Right. Yeah. So they go into your pocket. They're yours and non-taxable. And uh, Alberta has the highest minimum wage, which is $15. It can go, sometimes go a little bit higher. It's been as high as about 17 And uh, Ontario is fourteen twenty-five. Presently now in Quebec, it's thirteen fifty, And they're, we're looking for an increase in September 1st, 2021, which will go up to, I think it's fourteen twenty-five. BC is fourteen sixty. I didn't really take a look at the eastern states. But I mean, what I'm trying to say is you can't live off of, I can't imagine 7.25 an hour, even if it's U.S., even when you change yeah. your currency balance. That would be about yeah. nine bucks an hour in exactly. Canadian dollars. Exactly, and yeah. it's, it's just impossible. I work for the federal government. Well, actually, it's the provincial government. I'm in healthcare. I've been working now. I'm in my 36th year. I'm retiring soon. And uh, I'm out now at my top echelon, which I can make between uh, 24 to 28 dollars an hour uh, my average take home salary per year would be about 36,000 
which is pretty decent. I mean, you can you can live comfortably. Remember, we have Lisa. I think that particularly when an American audience is hearing this uh, information about how it is in Canada, there's two things that are missing from the equation. And that is how much does your health care cost you and how much does education cost you in Canada? Because those are two of the major sources of debt and bankruptcy here in the United States, particularly for people working at minimum wage. Okay, so health care, of course, it cost us, uh, well, pretty much nothing. I, I would say, are you talking about per year or? Yeah. Okay, so let's say when I pay my insurance premiums for a year, I would say it's about uh, $845. But remember, that is including also medication, hospital services, ambulance and also that amount is taken out of my salary and i it's also tax deductible so i can also add that to my taxes so i i I, spend 800 bucks a year and you've got comprehensive health insurance you know most americans don't get comprehensive health insurance for 800 dollars a month now if somebody wanted to go to college in canada and they didn't want to go to you know the canadian equivalent of harvard a high-end fancy private university, but instead they wanted to go to like the University of Montreal. What does that cost? Oh boy. Your tuition per semester, not including books, is now presently around $1,800 per semester and books will add up to maybe another thousand five. So we're talking 2008, 3000 per semester. But you can also apply for student loans and bursaries. It all depends on what the the salary of your parents are or if you're working yourself. There's a lot of um, of, of incentives to, uh, you know, uh, it's not, it really isn't that expensive. If we're not yeah, talking about a top line. Lisa, thank you. University. Thank you for sharing your experience and, and, and the information with, with an American audience. I really appreciate it. And, and greetings to, to you and all your friends in Montreal. Thank you so much. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.